Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. For his help to see what's here. Lord, we thank you for your word. Something I think we often take for granted. May we not take it for granted. May we not take this gathering for granted. Help us, Holy Spirit to see the incredible truth that is before us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Um, That is the question of all questions for all people. Who is Jesus? Um, As I've said many times over the course of the past 15 months, um, our study of Mark's gospel is all about answering that question. Who is Jesus? Mark chapter 1 verse 1 establishes the goal. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. When it comes down to the issues of life and death, heaven and hell, uh, the one question that must be answered and adhered to, don't miss this, correctly, is, who is Jesus? Um, I do not suggest that you look to the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or CNN or Fox News or most religious programs to find the answer. You know, many of those shows every so often run programs entitled, Who is Jesus?, especially around Christmas and Easter. And they host um, consultants um, who provide their answers, um, most of whom are are silly, liberal theologians and some historical scholars who reject the authority of Scripture. Now, although they may lift him up on a pedestal, as a a paradigm of human wisdom, decency, and kindness, and he is all those things. But he is much, much more than that. Most like him as a man, the very best of men. But they reject him as divine. They reject him as the God-man. 
That is, friends, God who became man. He's not a man that we put our wooden heads together and declared that he's God. No, he's God who became man. So the the only ultimate and absolute answer to the question, who is Jesus, is found, guess where? Go ahead. In the Bible, Scripture. Now, it's one thing for me to ask you the question, who is Jesus? It's another thing entirely when Jesus himself asks the question. And that is precisely what he does here in verses 35 to 37. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Now, let me say this. I'm I'm delighted um, that you're all here this morning, but I want to ask you a question. Okay, listen. Okay, why are you here? And what is it you want to hear? Why are you here? That is, why are you present? And what do you want to hear? That is, what do you hope to understand? This morning, what is your motivation for being here? Now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me give you the biblical answer. I am here to worship God in spirit and truth. And what I hope to hear is Christ preached. Hey, those are the, that's the biblical answer to those questions. Now, if you're coming here today because your marriage is falling apart, my heart goes out to you, but let me say this. The most important issue in life is what do you think of Christ? If you're here because your health is falling apart or your family's falling apart, the most important issue of life is what you think of Messiah. What do you think of the Christ? Now, if you're here because you haven't been here and perhaps you don't really want to be here and you're just showing your face so we won't ask you why you haven't been here, I want to ask you a question. What do you think of Jesus? Has your love grown cold? Has your love kind of grown tepid? So that what you thought about Jesus in the past isn't quite what you think of him now. And if you really follow the path back, you'll realize... Mm, I no longer think accurately about Jesus. You can ponder that. Because here, um, Israel's religious leaders did not think accurately about Jesus and therefore failed to rightly recognize Jesus. They persistently tried to discredit him before the people and or tried to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities. Simply put, beloved, the religious parties of Israel hated Jesus' popularity and unprecedented authority. They hated it, which, of course, undercut their own authority and their own prestige. So they, they acted in unison in an attempt 
I should say, in one attempt after another to ensnare him. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Their greatest enemy is Jesus. So here on this Tuesday of the last week of the Lord's earthly life, known as Passion Week, it's Tuesday, and on that Tuesday came came wave upon wave of attack, asking, by what authority do you do these things? Asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Another trick question. Answer, if a woman has been married seven times in this age, whose whose wife will she be in the age to come? Each time, responding with truth and clarity, Jesus shut them up and shut them down. And then finally, the last question posed by a scribal lawyer, we looked at last Lord's Day, Um, From within the ranks of the Pharisees comes this one, verse 28. He asked, which commandment is the most important of all? To which Jesus answered, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in agreement, the scribe says this, you've answered well. For loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is is greater than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, truth of the matter there was that God's ultimate offering and God's ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only one who's perfectly obeyed loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving neighbors yourself was standing in front of this man inches away. And reminded as we were last Lord's Day, beloved, Jesus has loved God perfectly for us. Jesus has loved our neighbor perfectly for us. And in him, by faith and trust in Christ alone, we are accepted by God and therefore enabled to reciprocate his grace-filled love back to him. Right? You remember that? which means we must deliberately and resolutely place ourselves, immerse ourselves in the place where God continually communicates his favor and love for us, and that is sitting under the exposition of his word. So if we forsake this, we quickly forget his love for us, and then our love grows cold, and we were warned, don't be like the church of Ephesus, to which Jesus looked at in Revelation chapters 2, and he said, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. And he provides a remedy. And if you've grown cold or tepid, here's the remedy. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent, turn around, change your thinking, and do the things you did at first when you had a passionate love for God. That's the remedy. If that's you this morning, that's the remedy. Now, although the scribe agreed with Jesus' assessment as regards the greatest commandment, Jesus, observing that he had answered wisely, said this, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And guess what? 
Not far means you're not in. <laughs> you're not in. So that's the danger to, to grow up under the gospel, to listen to the gospel, and become actually hardened by the gospel. The warning is you can be close but not in. So here, beloved, having frustrated all of them beyond measure, all these questions bombarding him, notice verse 34, and no one dared, look at it, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, now, guess what? It's Jesus' turn to ask the questions. So Jesus now turns the tables on these religious leaders, and he's going to go on the offensive now and question their theology and their practice. Okay, now remember, these are the most religious people in the world. And we just learned that you can be incredibly religious and not go to heaven. Did you get that? You can be incredibly religious, dedicated, and go to hell. Jesus said, you're, you're close to this fella, but he's not in. So today we're going to study the two questions Jesus uses to challenge their biblical knowledge and theology. And then next time we're going to look at his warning, or actually his assault and insult on their religious practices. Okay? So this morning we'll focus on these questions. We see a biblical question in the sense that Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And it's theological um, in the sense that Jesus is pointing this out to define the unique nature of the Messiah. Biblical in the sense that he cites scripture, theological in the sense that he uses scripture to point out the unique nature of the Messiah who was promised. the very nature that they rejected. That is his deity. See, they believed that the Messiah was to be human for sure, but not divine. In other words, not God, just a mere man. So here then, after day, a day of being bombarded, Jesus now asks his questioners a question. And then we'll see a follow-up question at the end of the message this morning. So look at it, verse 35. Here you go. There's the Introduction, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus here is simply trying to compel them to acknowledge that Messiah is far, far more than a biological descendant of David. Okay? Now, in Mark's account, chapter 22, verse 41, we read this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Okay, that is the offspring of David. David lived a thousand years before Christ. Okay? Now, let me say this. To ask a question like that to the most learned men of the day within Israel would be like asking a Ph.D., a question that any kindergartner could answer. And this is what he asks. In other words, naturally, beloved, the scribes 
say, verse 35, that the Christ is the son of David. David, we all know David, Israel's greatest king. Israel's greatest, mightiest king, the one who ushered in the golden age of Israel, the one with whom God entered into covenant, promising David a king from his line will sit on the throne for how long? Forever. Forever, David. I will have my king, one of your offspring, on the throne. And yet after David died, followed by 40 years of Solomon's mighty reign, the kingdom split. It was divided. We read about corruption after corruption, exile, defeat, an impotent military, and no legitimate king on the throne, and by Jesus' day, the oppression of Rome. No king. They're under the oppression of Rome. So the people here in this day yearned for the day when one like David would come with military valor, competent administrative skill, and reestablish the kingly office of Israel as a descendant of David. Okay? We together? Okay, now, Jesus was more than qualified as the human offspring of David. As a matter of fact, we could say that he was double qualified. Double qualified. Twice qualified as the biological descendant of David. Um, through his mother, we read his genealogy in Luke chapter 3. And then in Mark or Matthew chapter 1, we read where Jesus, as a legal descendant, through his adoptive father Joseph, the offspring of David. So that's why we say double qualified. Double qualified. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, what we're here to prove this morning by the words of Jesus is his deity as the son of David, his deity. Not merely a human descendant, but divine as the son of God. In other words, he's going to show them he came from heaven, fully God. That's why he had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, so that he wouldn't have the corruption of sinful fallen man. He's born through a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. They refuse to acknowledge that. So, while they greatly anticipated Messiah, the Christos, one with God, Jesus would say, I'm more than man. Remember, he said, I'm one with God. Before Abraham was, I am. Every time Jesus declared to them that he's Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he is I am, what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him because that was punishment for what? Blasphemy. Okay, look, look with me at John 10, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Why don't people believe? 
because they're not part of his flock. I and the Father are one. What Jesus says there is that we're one in essence. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are, are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. You see, the, the Messiah that they anticipated was merely human because the thought of a divine Messiah in their uninformed minds violates monotheism, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And his name is Yahweh. Now, granted, they remember now, they have witnessed Jesus do miracle after miracle. They never denied he did miracles. So what they saw on display was divine power, but yet they refused to bow down before him as divine. They refused. As a matter of fact, they attributed, they attributed his powerful, mighty, miraculous works to whom? The devil. So that is to say, uh, the scribes, they were correct to a point. He would be the offspring of David. Messiah would be. But they did not go far enough. Messiah would be the son of David, but he also would be the son of God. So Jesus takes them to their Old Testament scriptures. He takes them to a text. Friends, this is important. Now, this is a heavy message, so you've really got to follow me today. Amen? This is heavy theology that will only benefit you as a child of God in defending the deity of Jesus Christ as though he needs to be defended. Are you with me? Okay, so David takes them to a text that speaks only of the coming Messiah, this messianic text, Psalm 110. Now, there are numerous messianic texts, and if we look, which we're not going to have time to do this morning, at other messianic texts, or specifically other messianic psalms, you see in them a, a, a kind of double fulfillment, a near-future fulfillment, most of which will be fulfilled in David, Israel's great king, and then a future fulfillment that will be fulfilled in his king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. A near and far fulfillment. Okay, this one, the exclusive fulfillment of Psalm 110 is not a double fulfillment. It is only and possibly can only be fulfilled by the coming Messiah. Okay? Not a near and then future fulfillment, but can only be fulfilled in Messiah. So look at verse 36. David himself said in the Holy or no, I'm sorry. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, now first things first, first things first. Notice Jesus right there confirms the inspiration of Holy Scripture. In other words, when David wrote this psalm, 
he was not exercising merely his poetic inscription and musical composition, but he was writing by divine inspiration, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the whole Bible, we, we, we know is what? It's dual authorship. Men wrote as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul will later say that all Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. So God, speaking his words through the pen of human authors, recorded the very word of God in a way that the author's words were his words. And if you notice throughout the scriptures, the author's personalities and writing styles are kept intact. So we see the personality of Paul when we read Paul, or the personality of Peter when we read Peter, but yet they were both inspired by the Holy Spirit. Co-authorship. And let me say this, this is a warning. Having any lesser view of inspiration, you put yourself at odds with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? You put yourself at odds with the Lordship of Jesus if you don't believe all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says right here, David in the Holy Spirit declared. So here's Jesus in, the, in an offensive stance. So he, he throws out a little jab. It's just a little jab. It's not a knockout punch yet. He's going to knock them out. This is a jab. And he's writing them, first of all, that David wrote under divine inspiration. And what he wants to do here, beloved, is he wants to compel them by way of their own logic to recognize him as who he truly is because they were firm adherents. They adhered firmly to the fact that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here he takes them to their Old Testament scriptures that they affirmed as the word of God to elicit from them a confession of who he is and who he claimed to be. So he cites Psalm 110, verse 1. Every scribe would have known this psalm, okay? Every scribe would have known this psalm in its entirety. So I would like you to please turn to Psalm 110. And we're going to look at it this morning before we go back to Mark. Psalm 110. Okay, notice verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, friends, what's unique about this declaration is that it's not from the psalmist. It's not from the psalmist, but rather, notice, it's a declaration of God the Father by inspiration of God the Holy Spirit about God the Son. So it's almost as though David here writes as though he overhears an inner Trinitarian conversation. Notice, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, translators, put those all in caps for us. That, that's Yahweh, the personal name of God, Yahweh, um, says to my Lord, capital O, lowercase o-r-d, um, Adonai, God's title. 
So you have the personal name of God, Yahweh, a title for God here. Both describe, friends, both describe the one true God. Okay? So we read it like this. The Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my, David's Lord, Adonai, Messiah, Son of God, set at my, the Father's right hand, until I, the Father, put your, the Messiah's enemies, under your, the Messiah's feet. Okay? So here, the Father is bestowing upon his Son the place of highest position, the right hand of the Father. to act in his name. Now, ancient kings um, often portrayed themselves and would have their likeness either sketched or molded with their feet on the throat of their enemies while sitting on their throne. A king on his throne, seated with his foot on the throat of his enemies. Oftentimes, ancient kings would have that thing etched and then they would actually send it to their enemies. Intimidation factor, no doubt. Also, in ancient days, footstools would be placed in front of monarchs for them to simply rest their feet. So here, drawn together for us, are two images regarding God's son. Number one, he's seated. Number two, at the end, he's going to wipe out slaughter all of his enemies. Yeah, tender Jesus, meek and mild. That's who we're talking about. Amen? So notice, friends. Okay, let's pull out for a minute. Let's park at the rest stop and remember this. Jesus confirms here that he is the hermeneutical key of Psalm 110. That is, Jesus is pointing out he's the interpretive key to Psalm 110. But not only Psalm 110, after Jesus rose up from the dead and he was walking with those two distraught disciples, remember what Jesus did in Luke 24? He took them back to all of the Old Testament, Moses, the law, the prophets, and declared there that he's the hermeneutical key to all of the Old Testament. The interpretive key of the Old Testament is not the nation of Israel. It's not the land of Israel. It's, hello? It's Jesus. Hamashiach, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the key. Look, as we pull back from chapter and verse anywhere in the Old Testament, what do you see? You must see Christ. If you don't see Christ, or the moment you take your eyes off of Jesus while reading and studying the Old Testament, you will lose your way around the Bible. You'll be lost, and it won't make sense. Why? Because the story of the Bible is this. It's the bad news that we have decided in our arrogance to put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and that's on the throne. And we attempt to usurp his lordship, saying, I'll have control over my own life. I'll call the shots, and I will worship myself. That's the bad news. The good news is that God comes down and puts himself where we belong. 
under his judgment and under his wrath. Possible only by way of the incarnation. That is God becoming a man. Incarnate. God condescends to become a man. That's what the Old Testament was saying from Genesis 3.15 on. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Messiah's coming. I promise he's a coming. And he came. And here he is. Therefore, the entire Bible is about Jesus. Everything emerges from him. Everything points to him. Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, pitched a tent of flesh among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus takes you back to Psalm 110, verse 1, he's asserting the deity of Messiah, which means he is asserting his deity because he's Messiah. Are you excited as I am? (laughs) Notice, all authority is his, verses 2 and 3. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves, notice, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. He will never tire. He will never grow weary. This promised one. Notice a scepter. He has a staff. That represents the authority of a king and his right to rule. And he rules from heavenly Zion. Jesus has been ruling for 2,000 years, beloved. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been ruling at the right hand of God the Father, scepter in hand, the affairs of nations, peoples, and events by providential and spiritual force. He doesn't need anybody's permission for anything. He rules. He rules by the power of his word. That's why his word must be taught, preached, heralded, sung, and believed, and by his Holy Spirit. Conquering people's hearts. If you're a Christian here, guess what? He conquered you. He conquered your heart, your heart of unbelief, that stony heart. He smashed it, crushed it. If he doesn't crush you in that way, you'll die and be crushed under his judgment forever because he was judged and crushed your heart took out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He conquered your heart. Notice verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. See, they freely give themselves to Christ because the Holy Spirit subdues their heart. When the Holy Spirit subdued your heart, what what did you say? I surrender. I bow down. 
I worship you, King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen? Am I talking too fast this morning? There's so much here, I want to get through it. So pardon me if I am. He conquers hearts. It's the triumph of God's grace over our rebellion in the hearts of men and women, and then he cloaks us, notice, in his righteous robes, man. So when God looks at you and you walked in here feeling wretched this morning, guess what? Guess what? His view doesn't change if you're in Christ because when God sees you, you're cloaked in his righteous robes, so he always sees you as he sees his son. That's why we confess our sins, because we're already forgiven. Paternal forgiveness, not positional. Notice, okay, there's the kingly reign of Christ. That, that, that's the view of his kingly reign. And this is, now, this is what the Pharisees are being forced with. Now, remember, they're being forced to see this, and they, they know this entire text. Okay, so... Notice, verse 4, there's a surprising shift from triumphal king to, notice, an eternal priest. And guess what? It's the same person. So here we see the priestly reign of Messiah, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of... Let's say it, Melchizedek. Okay, now that's a name that takes us back to, to Abraham. Abraham. Okay, Abraham, who, who succeeded in rescuing his nephew Lot from a confederacy of kings who attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously before God destroyed it. They attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, they took loot and they took Lot with them, captive. Abraham gathers his men, went on and destroyed those enemies and took back the loot and took back Lot. Remember the story? Okay, now, as Abraham was returning from that victorious battle, he was met by Melchizedek. This great patriarch, the greatest patriarch, was met by Melchizedek, identified as priest of the Most High God. Priest of the Most High God. Who meets him, Melchizedek came and met Abraham, and what did he bring? Bread and wine. He brought bread and wine. He blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tenth, a tithe of all the spoils from the battle, a tenth of all his possessions, and that was long before the Mosaic law. You following me? Now, Melchizedek is also referred to in Scripture as king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Salem, Shalom, where Jerusalem, where David's throne will be, Jerusalem will be located. So the greater Melchizedek blesses the lesser Abraham, and the lesser Abraham 
ties to the greater Melchizedek in that account. Okay? Okay? All right. So Melchizedek, who's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 14, after 1,000 years without any additional mention, appears as a cryptic reference here in Psalm 110. And then, after another thousand years, appears where? In the book of Hebrews, Bible scholars. Hebrews. Describing for us how Jesus, by way of his resurrection and ascension, is not only king, king of kings, but also our great high priest with a priesthood like Melchizedek. So here, Jesus is able to hold the offices of king and priest. You couldn't do that in the Old Testament. And I'll show you that in a bit. Now, some scholars believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Do with that as you will. Notice, the Lord swears... Yahweh swears to David's Lord, Adonai, verse 1, you, my son, are priest forever, verse 4, who is positioned in what way? He's seated. Guess what priests in the Old Testament never did? They never sat down because their work of providing sacrifices on behalf of the people was never complete. Jesus comes, and he's the final sacrifice, providing what kind of atonement? Effectual. All those Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed his once and for all sacrifice. Amen? And he sat down. So Jesus, you see, is the transcendent king who sits upon his what? Throne. Kings sat on thrones where? Not in temples. In palaces. Kings didn't sit in temples, but in palaces. Okay, so notice. Let's go to another Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 6, one with which you're all familiar. Okay, now, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the what? Not the palace, but the temple. Throne, temple, together, not throne and palace. Now, historically, it's very ironic. King Isaiah, who was blessed with many military exploits as a king, um, one day in his pride, okay, he, remember he was a king, in his pride one day he, he marches into the temple and he thinks he's going to carry out a priestly duty. That office wasn't his. So he marches into the temple to burn incense, 2 Chronicles 26, and God strikes him with leprosy and he remained that way until his death. Because the role of priest wasn't his. He was, with, he was a king. So you just stay in your little role, king, and don't trample in to the temple in, in, in attempt to provide the role of priest. So God strikes him. He judges him. 
Now, Isaiah, in the year that King Isaiah died, saw the Lord on a throne in a temple, king slash priest. John's Gospel, chapter 12, turn to it. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 41, applies that vision, the vision of the Lord, the king priest, is applied to Jesus the Christ. Notice, verse 40 um, quotes Isaiah 6 directly. Um, you know, uh, Isaiah's going to have a mission to go preach until everyone's blind and their hearts are hardened and they won't believe. That's his, that's his call. So he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Him who? Okay, go back up to verse 37. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. You get that? Could not. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, him, Jesus, before he became a man. Awesome. Mighty. Powerful. Psalm 110. Notice the judicial reign of the Messiah in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, if you go to Revelation 19, you'll see that in, in, in vivid color with the bloody gorging of the flesh of all unbelievers who reject Christ. In the picture there, it's an apocalyptic vision of, of scavenger birds called in for the great supper of God where he devours all of his enemies when he comes back the second time. That's the picture. So you can look at that this afternoon for some refreshing reading. And I say refreshing because... <laughs> You won't be there because you're in Christ, the judge who was judged for you. Notice verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Okay? This is a victorious, conquering king priest. Okay, Now, we're reminded of something very interesting here by David, Psalm 110, verse 7. Notice, he will drink from the brook by the way. In 1 Samuel 30, when David and his men discover that the Amalekites, their enemies, came and burned the city, and they had, when he discovered they had taken all of their wives and children captive, David sets out with 600 men. And they get to the brook of Besor, and they, get, they sit down, and they take a drink to be refreshed. 
200 of the 600 are too tired to carry on. So David and his 400 men go on and go out after the Amalekites. And notice what we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And David brought back all, as well as all the spoil of the enemy. The picture is this. Jesus is pursuing his enemies as he sits at the right hand of his father until they are ultimately defeated and ultimately our Savior will crush the father of lies. What was the promise? Genesis 3.15. God gave a promise to Satan. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, will crush your head. And in the process, his heel will be bruised. Cross, crucifixion. He will be crushed ultimately. None of Satan's might, none of his fight will keep him out of the lake of fire. The vengeance of Jesus will be poured out upon Satan and all of his enemies and all enemies who've ever come up against his people will be slaughtered. And he lifts up his head as victor. Just like David slaughtered the Amalekites. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not what? Prevail. See, gates are defensive. Okay? Gates don't move, which means it's the church that's on the move against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail or prevent the kingdom from moving what? Forward. He's the king. He rules. He's the great priest. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 6 and following, and you will see it in vivid apocalyptic technicolor. Amen? Okay, so there's Psalm 110. Let's go back to Mark chapter 12. So the Lord's first question, verse 35, that's a setup question. That's the link that leads to his subject. The first question kind of establishes the ground upon which the next question is posed. Verse 37, David himself called him Lord. So how is he his son? Friends, David would never have addressed a mere human descendant as his Lord, okay? No father or grandfather would ever address his son or grandson as the superior. And if you do, you have some issues to deal with, man. You call your little son Lord, lowercase l? My master? My superior? No. Never. The descendant is always subordinate to the elder. So how then can David call him Lord when he is his biological offspring? Isn't it great? Just so masterful. Answer me, Bible scholars, meaning Jesus to these guys, not you. Answer me. Take up the scroll. Look what the inspired word of God means by what it says. 
Now they are impaled on the horns of a dilemma. After a day of questions, trying to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, the dilemma is theirs. The ones who called into question his authority, remember, by what authority do you do these things when he turned the temple upside down, the tables, that is. Now, friends, he demonstrates the extent of his authority. His authority is divine. And he's clearly telling them, and he's telling you, and he's telling me this morning that he alone is both God and man. Truly God, truly man, incarnate Lord, who, friends, has come to earth on a mission to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Are you one of the many? He laid down his life, a life of infinite value, friends, who alone upheld the perfect holy law of God, who alone loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength, something for which you never could do in and of yourselves. If your faith and trust isn't in him, you failed the test. He doesn't grade on a curve. He demands perfection, right? He did it in our place, and then in our place, condemned, he stood a death of infinite worth to the Father. A perfect sacrifice, freeing and saving and redeeming slaves like us. Who is king and priest forever, and at this very moment, as our great high priest, he is rightly representing you before the Father. Therefore, when you die, if you take your last gasp of breath this afternoon and you're in Christ, you'll immediately be with him. Amen? Now, let's move on. We're almost done. The Jews of Jesus' day, remember Jesus is in the temple. There's throngs of people. This is Passover week. There, is ten, there are tens of thousands and thousands of people there. And notice, the Jews of Jesus' day, they, they would not have made this great theological connection. But upon hearing these words of Jesus, notice Mark records, verse 37, and the great throng heard him gladly. No one had ever talked like this. No one ever possessed such an amazing ability to interpret the Old Testament. Now, the irony here, don't miss this. The irony is that David's Lord and descendant is standing here in the temple, which ultimately was designed to point to to him. That's what the whole sacrificial system was for, to point to him. The temple was to point to him. He is the temple. He came and tabernacled among us. He's the king. He's the temple. But he's still not recognized by the people of Israel. So here's Jesus, both David's son and David's savior. Here's Jesus, who is both David's son and God's son. Here's Jesus, who's both human and divine. Here's Jesus, who's both man and God. 
Friends, this text, Psalm 110, this text is what the New Testament will be built upon. Okay? Jesus cites it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Peter preaches it at Pentecost in Acts 2. Stephen preaches it right before he's stoned to death in Acts 7. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 1, verse 13, Hebrews 12, verse 2, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in all the New Testament. So the most important question in life, friends, is who is Jesus Christ and and what is your relationship to him? And let me say this, guess what? Everyone has a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of evangelicals today will say, do you have a relationship with Jesus? The answer is yes, everyone does. What they mean is, do you have a saving relationship with Jesus? Because anyone who does not have a saving relationship with Jesus is already what? Condemned. Whoever believes in him as he truly is, that is, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe as who he truly is, is condemned already. It's not to to merely believe, oh, I believe Jesus existed. No, do you believe this? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever, that's John 3, 18. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, verse 12. So he's Lord of heaven and earth. He's king, he's savior, he's ruler, and he's judge. That means you're either for him or against him. No middle ground. No fence sitters. Well, to me, Jesus is like this. You best get off that fence and repent because it means his condemnation already is upon you. Well, I don't believe he's like God. Think again. And you better think quick. And you better hope that the Holy Spirit reveals this to you or you're in a world of trouble. Don't play with him, please, if you are. Because, friends, before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. At whose right hand he sits. So bow now while you have breath and he will have mercy upon you, and you can, according to his grace, receive his salvation. If you bow then, you will receive his condemnation. Bow now, it's salvation. Bow then, it's condemnation. Either way, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So to read and correctly, underst- to, to, to read and correctly understand the inspired word of God is to rightly understand who Jesus is. Amen? So important, because to this day, the veil lies over the hearts, Second Corinthians says, of all who do not rightly believe. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is what? It's removed. For the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Finally, Mark provides us a warning. Okay? Be done in two minutes. A warning. If you notice in verse 37, the great throng heard him gladly. Okay? Now, the warning is not to merely enjoy hearing Jesus. It's not to merely enjoy hearing his teaching because strange as it is, this is at least strange to me, there are many people who have this weird fascination to want to hear the teachings of Jesus about the Christ, but they never respond in repentance to what they hear. Remember Herod, the one that had John the Baptist beheaded? We just read about him a number of months ago. Guess what? He enjoyed listening to John. Okay, now follow this. It's the same exact expression that we find in verse 37. We find back in Mark 6, verse 20. When he, Herod, heard him, John, he, Herod, was perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Do not be one who merely enjoys hearing and never responds to what you hear. So my question, why are you here, H-E-R-E, and what will you do with what you hear, H-E-A-R? The question that Jesus puts to you today is simply this. Who am I? Who do you say? That I am. Remember when he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you're this and some say you're that. Some say you're a prophet, come back from the dead. Some say you're John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus went on to say this, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. So I pray, if you've denied the deity of Jesus Christ, my hope is that today he'll lift the veil and enable you to believe for the salvation of your soul. And if you are a Christian, which most I know are here, may you be blessed to know that God sent son his, God his son to save your soul by bearing the wrath of God in your place. The reason we're here is to worship in spirit and truth and to hear Christ preached. That's a lot deeper than Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life. And I'm not joking. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the words of our Lord to these hypocritical, religious, very religious leaders of Israel in this day. Yet we know that even some of them came to faith. And for that, we thank you. May we not take for granted what we have in Christ, dear God, we pray. And may you bless these, your dear people, with the truth of your word, by the presence of your spirit. Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify us in the truth as your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen.
He who has ears, let him hear.